Chapter 16 of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 After the Battle. There was little leisure or rest either for myself or my subordinates in the early days of May. We had to inaugurate a system to meet the conditions which were the result of the battle. The blockade of Manila must be established and enforced, immunity from surprise or attack by the Spaniards insured, Cavite arsenal must be occupied, its stores protected, and its precincts policed, and generally American supremacy and military discipline must take the place of chaos. About 11 a.m. on the 2nd of May, the British Council, Mr. E. H. Rawson Walker, who was acting as gerant of United States Consular Affairs, came on board the Olympia to make an official call. During many weeks to come, he was to perform a most valuable service in his efforts to render the lot of the foreign residents as little onerous as possible under what to them were most trying conditions. I asked him to remain to luncheon with me. While we were waiting for it to be announced, and he was telling me about the condition of affairs in the city, I was informed that the shore batteries of Manila were being manned. As a matter of precaution, the ships were signaled to go to general quarters, but at the same time I told the consul he need have no fear of the batteries opening fire. So we sat down to our meal, which was not interrupted by any shots. This incident had its effect. The consul agreed with me that in view of the possibility of some irresponsible person in the batteries firing on the ships, and thus precipitating a bombardment of the city, it would be advisable to remove the temptation. Late that afternoon, the ships all took up an anchorage nearer our base off the Cavite arsenal, which was retained until the attack on Manila in the following August. During the night, between the departure of the Spaniards and the landing of our guards at Cavite, there had been some looting on the part of the natives. But the next morning the place was well policed by our forces and all disorder checked. Commander E. P. Wood of the Petrel was placed in charge of the arsenal, government buildings, and stores. The machinery, docks, and workshops were utilized for our ships, and later the many resources of the place were employed not only in keeping our squadron in good condition, but also in making repairs upon the other naval vessels and army transports which later arrived from home. Working parties were at once landed to bury the dead, and all our surgeons were sent ashore to aid in attending the Spanish sick and wounded. Arrangements were soon made to send the sick and wounded, numbering 490, to Manila. Captain Lamberton took charge of their removal upon the captured steamer Isabel, flying the Red Cross flag, and later of their transfer to the Spanish authorities. A detail of Marines was sent to act as stretcher men in moving those unable to walk from the hospital to the steamer. The sisters, who were acting as nurses, received the Marines with every sign of abject fear and horror. They had read the Spanish Captain General's proclamation about the fiendish nature of the American barbarian, and fully expected to be subjected to outrage. In establishing the blockade, all merchant vessels in the bay were assigned to appropriate anchorage outside the zone of possible naval operations. All arriving merchant vessels were boarded off the Bocas as soon as sighted in the offing, informed of the blockade, and warned off. 
unless laden with coal. In that event they were allowed to enter and their cargoes taken for our squadron at the current market rate. Men of war of various nationalities soon made their appearance. They were allowed to enter without hindrance other than being boarded to establish their identity, thoroughly informed of the actual condition of affairs, given an anchorage off the city, and permitted to communicate with their countrymen and with Spanish officials. They were allowed to carry the mails for Manila, and with a single exception the consideration which I tried to show was never abused. Commercially, the blockade was always vigorously enforced, and from May 1st until the surrender of the city on August 13th, the great trade of Manila was entirely suspended. When on May 4th I sent the McCullough to Hong Kong with my cable reporting the victory, the Boston and Concord conveyed her beyond the Bocas. This precaution, taken in view of the fact that there were known to be over twenty Spanish gunboats stationed in various parts of the Philippines, was soon deemed unnecessary, and all subsequent trips were made without fear of molestation. When she returned on May 11th, bringing the news of my promotion, with the congratulations of the President and the Secretary of the Navy, the broad pennant of a commodore was hauled down and a rear admiral's flag hoisted on board the Olympia. Incidentally, I may say that the bundle of congratulatory cables from chambers of commerce, clubs, corporations, and individuals showing the enthusiasm at home was even more surprising to my officers than to me. There was a feeling in the squadron that, after all, we were away from the main theater of war, which was in the Atlantic, where our battleship squadron was also looking for the Spaniards. Professional opinion sharing none of the public sphere of the outcome, we were certain of the decisive success of Rear Admiral Sampson's squadron in any engagement. But I had reminded my officers that if ours were really the first blow of the war, it must be appreciated at home. In view of the evident gratification of the government and the public at what we had accomplished, I hastened to recommend that Lamberton, my chief of staff, and all my captains be advanced ten numbers. Their aid had made success possible. On May 12th, an amusing incident occurred. A Spanish gunboat, the Caleo, was sighted coming in. The Raleigh was promptly underway to overhaul her, and joined by the Olympia and Baltimore, fired a few shots before she surrendered. She had sailed from some remote spot in the islands where it was not known that war existed between the United States and Spain, and her commander was utterly dumbfounded when he was received with shotted guns from foreign men-of-war in Spanish waters. He was a young fellow, and his crew were mostly natives, including only three or four Spaniards. I told him that all could take their parole, but he answered that the Spanish regulations would not permit the acceptance of a parole. You, sir, he said quite dramatically, who are old enough to be my father, advise me what to do in this emergency. If I go to Manila saying that I have been paroled, I shall be shot. Then you may go without parole, I said, as he and his crew would be only an encumbrance as prisoners. The very next day the Calayo, commanded by Lieutenant Tapan, was doing duty as a gunboat in our service by boarding vessels off the Bocas. We also commissioned the armed transport Manila, under command of Lieutenant Commander Frederick Singer, 
the Barcelo, Rapido, Hercules, and other small craft that had been captured were all transformed into auxiliaries which became valuable on patrol and messenger duty. My instructions sent by Acting Secretary Roosevelt had said that I was to conduct offensive operations in the Philippine Islands. My idea first and last was to obey them in spirit and letter until I was otherwise ordered. While we remained at war with Spain, our purpose must be to strike at the power of Spain wherever possible. The question of making the Philippine Islands United States territory was one of policy for the nation at home to decide, which had nothing to do with my duties as a naval officer. When I sent the McCullough to Hong Kong again on May 13th, in my report of conditions I once more emphasized the fact that I could take the city at any moment, and now I impressed upon the government at home the necessity, if it were our intention to occupy Manila, that a force of occupation should immediately be sent. For this purpose I estimated that five thousand well-equipped troops would be necessary, and they would have been sufficient if we had had to deal alone with the Spaniards, and not with a native insurrection. We had the city under our guns, as Farragut had New Orleans under his, but naval power can reach no farther ashore. For tenure of the land you must have the man with a rifle. The position of the squadron was one of peculiar isolation. It must be six days by way of Hong Kong before I could receive an answer to any communication to Washington. The supply ship Zafiro, which came to be regularly employed for these trips, invariably had one of our officers in charge. His authority gave the vessel an official character, enabling her to fly a pennant, and ensuring her an immunity from the many red tape restrictions and charges to which merchant vessels are subjected. She brought from China delicacies, which greatly mitigated the discomforts of blockade duty, with its attendant uh, seafare. In Manila Bay a little fruit or a few fresh eggs might occasionally be purchased from the natives but in such small quantities as to admit of no general distribution. In the purchase of supplies, however, the officer in charge of the Zafiro had to exercise discretion, and particularly in their embarkation. The British authorities were personally so cordial and so inclined to be fair in their construction of the laws of neutrality that I thought we should be very careful on our side to commit no act that could be misconstrued. Both fresh meat and vegetables were bought by Chinese compradors from Chinese merchants and sent off to the Zafiro in small quantities under cover of night. Happily, we had the fact in our favor that the British part of Hong Kong harbor only extends to a certain limit. Beyond this, the Chinese authorities have control. Therefore, the Zafiro could be anchored in the Chinese zone whenever she took on board coal or provisions. Of course, the Spanish consul at Hong Kong was on the lookout. Indeed, his activity, if it could have been transmitted to the Spanish army and navy in the Philippines during the period of preparation for war, might have made the victory of May 1st less easily won. At one time, the British colonial authorities made a point that our use of the cable for military purposes was a breach of neutrality and could not be permitted. Lieutenant Walter McLean, the officer then in charge of the Zafiro, having made proper representations in answer, was allowed to be the judge or censor of our cablegrams. 
thus all that he chose to pass would be accepted and forwarded only by efficient enforcement of the blockade could we be certain that no contraband of war reached the spaniards in manila the glint of a sail or a trail of smoke on the horizon was quickly detected by our lookout no sooner was either one reported than the signal flags from the olympia dispatched a vessel to overhaul and investigate the stranger upon one occasion a small craft emerged from an inlet of the bay and was seen making for manila the mcculloch being sent in chase soon overhauled and captured her she proved to be the spanish gunboat Leyte, which we immediately utilized for our service she had fled from the scene of action on may first and with some refugees on board had run up one of the rivers to the northward and westward of the city her commander had hoped to escape out of the bay by night but finding us so watchful and himself short of provisions and harried by the insurgents he finally decided to make for manila or failing that to surrender our squadron was maintained in constant readiness to resist attack and every ship was prepared to get under way at a moment's notice many merchant steamers tugs launches and coastwise vessels were lying in the harbor in enforced idleness and available for any purpose meanwhile the officers and crews of admiral montojo's sunken squadron were in the city presumably they must chafe under the recollection of their defeat the officers had shown their courage in battle it stood to reason that they would not hesitate at any desperate undertaking of the kind that made cushing's destruction of the albemarle so notable in order to strike a blow for their country moreover they would have technical knowledge essential for the use of torpedoes indeed it was inconceivable to our own officers that any service could show such professional inertness as that of the spaniards during the blockade we were always apprehensive lest their apparent inaction was merely a ruse to lull us into a sense of security at all events it was my duty to take every precaution against any form of surprise which i would take against the most energetic enemy meanwhile i received from time to time alarming rumors and reports on may twentieth the insurgents brought me circumstantial information that the spaniards would try to recover cavite by an attack from the land side that night the petrel and Calayo were ordered into a position commanding the navy yard and the rest of the squadron was on the qui vive but morning came without any sign of any movement on shore again toward the middle of june there was a circumstantial warning of a torpedo attack all preparations were made to receive it steam was kept up on the small boats while the boston concord and Callao were sent at three a m to search the waters of the bay in the vicinity of manila but as usual nothing happened it was about this time that our continual watchfulness was actually tested by a german man-of-war steam launch this was the first and only occasion that any launch of the numerous foreign men-of-war in the harbor which had gathered to observe the operation had approached one of our vessels after dark for naturally it was known that any squadron in time of war will take no risks in allowing small craft to approach it at night when the german launch was picked up by the searchlights of our vessels she continued to advance her true nature was not readily determined at once 
and as I had observed her myself from the quarter-deck, I ordered a six-pounder shot fired over her, while the marine watch on duty opened a small arm fire. She stopped, and then we identified a small German flag being waved by her coxswain. A picket was sent to inspect her and to bring her officer to the flagship. He appeared rather flurried by his uh, narrow escape. Apparently he was impressed when I informed him of the great danger that any small craft ran in approaching a squadron after dark and time of war. I expressed the hope that hereafter German boats would be sent only during the day, as otherwise a distressing accident might uh, unavoidably occur. Besides thus constantly upon the alert by night, while by day, in spite of the tropical heat, the crews were continually exercised at sub-caliber practice and ship drills, and still further taxed by the necessity of sending working parties on shore to the Cavite Arsenal machine shops, the intervening months between the victory and the occupation of Manila by the troops proved very trying to officers and men. But they had in mind the fate of the Maine when lying at anchor in a Spanish harbor, and there was no inclination to relaxation of vigilance on their part. As for myself, I have ever been a very early riser. I was a, always about the ship before daylight, while Chief of Staff Lamberton and Flag Lieutenant Brumby divided the night between them into watches. The strain had soon told upon Captain Gridley, and on May 25th he was condemned by a medical survey and started for home, where he was never to arrive alive. Captain Lamberton succeeded him in command of the flagship, but still remained a close adviser, while heavier duties devolved upon Brumby, to whose unswerving industry, loyalty, and high intelligence I owe an everlasting debt. Among the situations with which I had to deal promptly as they arose, when I could not delay to consult Washington, the most complicated was that of the Filipino insurgents. Before the squadron had left Hong Kong, a cable, dated April 24th, had been received from our consul general at Singapore, saying that Emilio Aguinaldo, the insurgent chief, was at Singapore and would proceed to Hong Kong to see me if I so desired. I requested him to come, as it was possible that he might have valuable information to impart at a time when no source of information was to be neglected. He came to Hong Kong, but did not arrive until after the departure of our squadron. Upon the first visit of the McCullough to Hong Kong, he and several other insurgent leaders applied for transportation to Cavite. In the absence of any orders on the subject, Lieutenant Brumby refused to grant the request, but promised to take up the matter with me. On the second trip of the McCullough, I sent Ensign Caldwell with instructions to allow Aguinaldo and three or four of his colleagues passage on board her to Manila. Aguinaldo had been at one time a copyist in the Cavite arsenal under the Spanish regime. He was not yet thirty, a soft-spoken, unimpressive little man, who had uh, enormous prestige with the Filipino people. Obviously, as our purpose was to weaken the Spaniards in every legitimate way, thus hastening the conclusion of hostilities in a war which was made to free Cuba from Spanish oppression, operations by the insurgents against Spanish oppression in the Philippines under certain restrictions would be welcome. Aguinaldo 
was allowed to establish himself in the arsenal, where he opened negotiations with his compatriots. Soon, however, the marine officer in charge of the guard of the naval station was complaining about the constant traversing of his lines by scores of natives, who of course might be friends, but might equally well be enemies. As a result, I sent for Aguinaldo and informed him that he must leave the arsenal, but I would allow him to take up his quarters in Cavite town. From my observation of Aguinaldo and his advisers, I decided that it would be unwise to cooperate with him or his adherents in an official manner. Aside from permitting him to establish himself ashore, the only aid rendered him was a gift of some Mauser rifles and an old smoothbore gun that had been abandoned by the Spanish. He mounted the gun on a float, but I declined to grant his request that our launches tow it across the bay. In short, my policy was to avoid any entangling alliance with the insurgents. While I appreciated that, pending the arrival of our troops, they might be of service in clearing the long neck of land that stretches out from Cavite Peninsula to the environs of Manila. Their numbers increasing by daily additions, the Filipinos slowly but surely drove the Spaniards back toward the city. By day we could see their attacks, and by night we heard their firing. We had some negotiations with them in regard to the disposition of Spanish prisoners and the transfer of Spanish women and children who had fallen into their hands, and again at the request of the Spanish Captain-General Don Basilio Augustin Davila, I asked Aguinaldo's good offices in securing free passage through the insurgents' lines for Don Basilio's own family and other Spanish families who were cut off from Manila. His answer, expressing his willingness to grant any request, if it were in his power, was interesting because of his quaint English. The insurgents fought well. Their success, I think, was of material importance in isolating our marine force at Cavite from Spanish attack and in preparing a foothold for our troops when they should arrive. By the end of May they had entirely cleared Cavite province of the enemy and had so nearly surrounded Manila as to cause a panic among the inhabitants. The foreign consuls, acting for their apprehensive compatriots, now appealed to me to allow refugees of the various nationalities to leave the limits of the city and find asylum under my protection. Already, upon application of the British consul and of Captain Edward Chichester of the British cruiser Immortalité, the senior British naval officer present, I had permitted several Europeans and some 450 Chinese to embark in an English steamer bound for Amoy, and I was now equally willing to grant this new request. At first I designated Cavite town as a place of refuge, but after further consideration I decided that as all the quarters and facilities of Cavite would be needed for our own troops upon their arrival, it would be better to employ some of the many vessels than lying idle off Manila. Accordingly, ten of these were chartered by the different consuls and placed under the flags of their respective countries, in charge of the different men-of-war assembled off the city. Later, three more, one being assigned to the authority of the British, one to the French, and one to the German men-of-war, were added for the Spanish women and children. I was also glad to consent to the request of the Spanish authorities that a number of their wounded, then in the military hospital at Guadalupe, should be transferred to a ship in the bay in charge of Captain Chichester, 
and through my good offices the insurgents who held the territory between this hospital and the sea allowed the wounded to pass through uh, the lines for embarkation it was my aim to do everything consistent with military wisdom to minimize the rigor of the blockade as early as may sixteenth the navy department had informed me that the charleston and transport with troops would soon be dispatched a week later the peking australia and city of sydney with a force of twenty five hundred men under command of brigadier general anderson sailed from san francisco for honolulu bringing for the squadron a supply of ammunition which i had earnestly requested after the depletion of our magazines and shell rooms by the battle i felt the inevitable solicitude of any commander in the midst of war who is without sufficient ammunition to meet the emergencies of an engagement this solicitude developed into anxiety when not only had spain dispatched a stronger naval force than my own with a view to retrieving the disaster of may first but another nation was gathering a powerful squadron in manila bay the effect of the victory had precipitated a new element in the mastery of the pacific and in the international rivalry for trade advantage in the populous orient hitherto the united states had been considered a second-class power whose foreign policy was an unimportant factor beyond the three-mile limit of the american hemisphere by a morning's battle we had secured a base in the far east at a juncture in international relations when the parceling out of china among the european powers seemed imminent this intrusion of an outsider could hardly be welcome in any quarter where there was opposition to the policy of the open door and the integrity of china which was advocated by us i knew that the intervention of any third power or group of powers while sampson had yet to engage cervera or in the critical event of any setback to our arms might have brought grave consequences for us while the philippines were a rich prize for any ambitious power or if they remained spanish they were still under the sovereignty of a nation which could hardly be expected to play an important part in the affairs of china End of chapter 16